Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, June 25th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is going to be one of the, um, one of what I hope are the final segments of our series, The Jews in Europe. It's really not meant to be an entire history of Jews in Europe. It's really meant to be more or less a synopsis, even though it's a pretty long series, a synopsis of the Judaizing of Europe. The Judaization of Europe through the Kabbalah and eventually through the secret societies, which has basically turned Christianity and many aspects of more secular European society into a tool for world Jewry. And nowhere is that more evident than in the history of England from the time of Oliver Cromwell. So this segment is subtitled Judaizing England and Sweden because it simply couldn't be avoided. A discussion of Sweden couldn't be avoided because the Portuguese rabbi who went by the pseudonym, who is well known by the pseudonym Manasseh ben Israel, I hate to even repeat it, made overtures to Queen Christina of Sweden before he ever made overtures or presented himself to Oliver Cromwell. And Christina already had enough Jews of her own. Before we proceed with a short summary of the Jewish presence and influence in 17th century England, we should take a brief moment to look at the Jewish presence and influence in contemporary Sweden. Perhaps the Swedes missed an opportunity in saving England from Judaism, at least temporarily, when Christina, the Swedish queen, rejected the advances of Manasseh ben Israel. But in truth, she had already had enough Jews of her own. We do not like to use Jewish sources for our studies. Sometimes we're just stuck doing so. And we strongly dislike quoting Jews unless we are quoting them critically. But on some topics relating to Jews, some of their writers are worthy of quoting so long as we can corroborate their statements independently. So the following excerpt is from a book written by a Jew named David Katz. And he's actually done a lot of research on this particular subject, and it does show in his citations. And this book was entitled, Manasseh ben Israel's Mission to Queen Christina of Sweden, 1651-1655. With perfect hindsight, this is Katz, I'm quoting. With perfect hindsight, one often sees Manasseh ben Israel's career as leading inexorably to his mission to Oliver Cromwell in 1655, when he came to London to plead for the readmission of the Jews to England, nearly four centuries after their expulsion under Edward I in 1290 A.D. 
at least this is how the events of the 1650s appear, if one begins with the Whitehall Conference of 1655 and follows the thread back to the first tentative overtures toward England from Amsterdam. Even after the publication of The Hope of Israel in 1650, however, it was not apparent that Manasseh would soon be devoting himself to the cause of Anglo-Jewry. On the contrary, it was immediately after the appearance of the rabbi's influential book that he began maneuvering for a place in the retinue of the notorious Christina, Queen of Sweden. Only after he failed to obtain a position among her band of foreign scholars, they were actually mostly Jews, did Manasseh devote himself wholeheartedly to the readmission of the Jews to England. Other Jews had managed to win themselves a place in Christina's circle. So Manasseh's scheme was quite practicable. If Queen Christina had accepted the rabbi's proposals with more alacrity, the history of 17th century Anglo-Jewry would have been very different indeed. And continuing to quote Katz, while philo-Semitic trends are readily identifiable in England, decades before Manasseh ben Israel turned his energies toward London, it was not until he began to correspond with Englishmen that this vague sense of sympathy was transformed into a political force. Yet while many of the bare facts of his life and the list of his influential contacts are easily accessible. The implications of the surviving evidence have never been fully drawn. If one examines his early overtures to England side by side with his efforts to find employment at Queen Christina's court, it becomes evident that, similar to anyone seeking employment, Manasseh ben Israel submitted more than a single application since, by 1650, he was desperately in need of a more lucrative situation. A Harlop Jew would do anything but get a real job. Driven onto hard times by bad luck and political disasters beyond his control, spurned by the Dutch Jewish community as a superficial scholar and an inadequate clergyman. Manasseh found the acclaim he craved among Gentiles, the dreaded word, who came to regard him as the ambassador of the Jewish people to Europe. Manasseh's efforts on behalf of Anglo-Jewry appear wholly one-dimensional, if seen in isolation from the disappointing period that he endured while Englishmen were fighting a civil war, and the following years when he was distracted by the red herring of Christina's interest in Jews and Jewish studies. Christina ruled Sweden from 1632 to 1654, when, still as a young woman, she abdicated in favor of her cousin, Charles X 
Gustav. At an early age, she decided not to marry and adopted many masculine practices. After abdicating, she went off to Rome to pursue an interest in theater. The introduction of radical liberal feminism is not as new as we think. Christina seems to be quite the liberated woman. We have obtained a PDF copy of a book which is a compilation of the state papers of John Thurlow, a lawyer who was the first secretary to the Council of State under Charles I and continued under both Oliver and Richard Cromwell. The papers date from 1638 to 1656. The papers include a great deal of the correspondence which his office had received. Among them were the following messages from Hamburg, Germany, which we repeat because they corroborate the accounts concerning the relationships which Queen Christina had with Jews. And from a letter which John Thurlow had received from a Mr. Bradshaw, the English resident at Hamburg, I have received your letter by the last post. This day I have been waiting on the Queen of Sweden, who came hither yesterday, post through Denmark, for I have, as have not time, had I matter to enlarge. I, I guess the language here is very concise. I wonder my, why my letter sent by the mail ship was not delivered to you or the mast ship, I'm sorry. The matter is accomptable for it. This language is medieval English. Accomptable. I can't translate on the fly. I'm sorry. As soon as the ship comes here, I shall cause her to reload with the rest of the masts and seek to save what charge I can. In my last enclosed a letter, in my last, I enclosed a letter from the Queen of Sweden, for she's called so still. In other words, she's still called the Queen of Sweden, even though she abdicated in favor of her cousin. To His Highness, with another from myself, which I presume you received and read, I then gave you notice of my laying down the place of deputy to the English company and the reason of it, which I hope pleases all sides. With the honest party may not now be forgot and left in the hands of malignants, but would be but an ill reward for the faithfulness. Excuse this hast. I am, sir, your humble servant. And then a very short time later, on July 4th, on the same day, July 4th, 1654, from a person only identified by the initials O.S. And this is under intelligence from Hamburg in John Furlow's ledgers. On the 26th day of the last month, the brother of the new crowned King of Sweden came to this town who is traveling for France, and some days after him the late 
Queen of Sweden, meaning late, meaning that she had recently been queen, came hither likewise, but very privately, insomuch that nobody knew of her coming, until two or three hours after her entrance to the city. She had not above twelve persons in all with her, amongst whom some Swedish earls, and comes her soft from Elsinore, her post, and comes her post from Elsinore. It is said she will expect her baggage here, which is coming after, and then profecture her attended journey, which is given out to be for the spa. There must have been some luxurious spa in Hamburg. She lodges here in a rich Jew's house, which, as it is thought, was recommended to her majesty by Don Pimentel, the late Spanish ambassador in Sweden. So, Christina had a long-term relationship with Jews. She had a court full of them, and we will be hearing from her again shortly. Evidently, however, or hearing of her again shortly, I'm sorry. Evidently, however, the Kabbalah had made its way to Sweden long before Christina became queen and began her flirtations with her Jewish friends. Johan Burra, B-U-R-E, I imagine like German should be read, that the, the trailing vowels are not silent from what I understand. Johan Burra, who in academic circles was also known as John Burius, lived from 1568 to 1652. He was a tutor to both Gustavus Adolphus, the king of Sweden who died on the battlefields of the Thirty Years' War, and his daughter Christina. Johann Burria, or Johann Burra, was born in 1568 near Uppsala, the son of a Lutheran priest. He studied in Uppsala, Sweden, in Germany and Italy. He became a professor in 1602, and from 1603 he was the royal antiquarian. He learned both Latin and Hebrew, and became well-versed in reading old books on Kabbalah. He mixed the runes and Norse myths with the Kabbalah, astrology, and magic in a system that he called Adula Runes, Adula Runes or Gothic Kabbalah. Early in Sweden's period as a world power, John Burius entwined mysticism and concepts from the Kabbalah with a passion for the ancient Goths. According to a thesis written by Thomas Carlson of the Religion Science Department at the University of Stockholm, and I quote, John Burrius saw himself as a prophet intended to revive the old religion that he believed had existed among the ancient Goths in the area around Uppsala. And he was doing that through the Kabbalah. Notes Carlson, and that's my note, notes Carlson, and Carlson adds, John Burrius's thinking reflects an important but still rather unexplored part of cultural and religious history. And that's summarized from a book written by Carlson 
titled Gothic Kabbalah in Sweden's Golden Age. So John Burius was Sweden's John D, and there is a history of philo-Semitism in Sweden, or favor for the Jews in their lives from this time forward. What follows is an excerpt from the book, Philo-Semitism and the Gothic Kabbalah, 1688-1710, to from Chapter 1, The Swedberg Family in Uppsala, Philo-Semitism and the Gothic Kabbalah, written by Marsha Keith Shukard. Emanuel Swedborg, who was to gain fame as a master of the natural and supernatural sciences, was born in Stockholm in February 1688, the third child of Jesper Swedberg, or Swedberg, a chaplain in the horse guards of King Charles XI son of a farming and copper mining family, the robust and blunt-speaking Swedberg gained the king's favor when he had encouraged the soldiers to learn to read, while at the same time lambasting mere brain faith that did not result in pious behavior and charitable action. Four years after Emmanuel's birth, the king sent Swedberg on a study tour to England and the continent, where he formed many of the opinions that he would forcefully impose on his most sensitive son. For better or worse, the huge shadow of his father would loom over Emmanuel's inner and outer worlds for the rest of his life. Emmanuel went on to become a famous theologian in Sweden. During his travels, Jesper Swedberg met royalist churchmen, innovative scientists, and philo-Semitic scholars, and he developed contacts that would be resumed by Emmanuel during his later travels. For three months in England, the chaplain observed and admired the scientific work of the Royal Society, but he did not approve of the factionalism that would soon rack the British church and state. Recording his negative response to all the many sects and parties, he explained, I mean those that the so-called Reformed Church is divided into, not speaking of the biggest party, which is called Thoris and Whigs, of High Church and Low Church, of Quakers and Anabaptists, but only of the so-called English Church, which was broken into Puritans of different sorts and other parties. His observations in 1684 reinforced his belief that disunity is of the devil, who promotes it and derives the greatest satisfaction from it, especially in the teachers of the congregation. Impressed by the religious tolerance of the Stuart king, Charles II, and the campaign for religious unity by the high Anglicans, Swedberg traveled to France in 1685. There, despite the strong anti-papal sentiments of his native Lutheran church, he came to admire the active charity carried out 
by Roman Catholics, who could not easily be dismissed as superstitious papists. Their practical accomplishments in aiding the poor influenced his growing determination that the Swedish church should have a useful impact on the nation's living standards. Swedberg's son, Emmanuel, would later develop a whole mystic theology of use in regard to property ownership. In Germany, Swedberg called on various Orientalists. Now, Orientalist seems to have been originally an academic code word for Jews. Swedberg called on various Orientalists, of whom the most important was Esdras Edzard, whose successful conversion efforts in the Jewish community fanned Swedberg's millenarian hopes. And it was common to look forward to the millennium at this time, even as it is today, and we'll address that several times here this evening. Millenarian hopes are the errant belief in a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth over all nations, preceding Armageddon and the rule of an Antichrist, based on a misunderstanding of Revelation chapter 20. During his ten weeks resident in Edzard's Hamburg home, he learned of his host's outreach to Jews who had been believers in the messianic mission of the Jewish Kabbalist Sabbatai Zevi, but who now suffered disillusionment after their hero's conversion to Islam. And she has the word forced in parentheses. I don't know why it's in parentheses. Maybe she doesn't believe it. Which would be fine. It seems that from the start of the Reformation, Christians were fascinated with Jewish messianic hopes, naively believing that the Jewish Messiah was their Messiah as well, which would fulfill the belief in millennialism. They could not have been more wrong. Edzard had learned from Manuel Texiera, resident in Hamburg, for the abdicated Swedish queen Christina, so she's using Jews as her ambassadors, about their mutual fascination with the Sabbatian movement, meaning the belief that this Jew Sabbatai Zevi was a, was a messiah. An enthusiastic Christina even danced in the streets with her Jewish friends in the Messianic year of 1665. And some thought it would be 1666. Edzard also heard from Texiera about his subsequent embarrassment at the failure of the movement. But that doesn't stop the Jews, right? They just set a new date. While Swedberg was in Hamburg, the Jewish bankers still served as resident for Christina and Charles XI, and news about Jewish affairs and Sabbatian controversies on the continent continued to be of great interest to the Orientalist scholars at Uppsala University. 
The Sabbatian movement was the Jewish declaration by a so-called Jewish prophet, a false prophet, obviously, named Nathan of Gaza, that Sabbatai Zevi was the Messiah. These were actually only Jewish hucksters pretending to be theologians. Jewish sources still consider them to be valid theologians today. Continuing with our source... When Jesper Swedberg, or perhaps that Swedberg, returned to Sweden in August 1685, he informed the king about Edzard's missionary work among the Jews, and he convinced him to support similar efforts among the Indians of the New World, whom he and Edzard believed to be descendants of the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. Now this is 30 years or 35 years after Manasseh ben Israel had written his book. And the, this Jew, Edzard, also believes it. He probably got it from ben Israel's book. He believes it and he sold the idea to this Swede who became a professor at Uppsala University and later became a bishop in a prominent post in Sweden. Four years later, Charles XI had been convinced by Swedberg's friend, Professor Lars Norman, to allow a small number of heterodox Jews, Jews that don't believe what Orthodox Jews believe, I guess, heterodox Jews into Sweden, and the king presided over their baptism. However, he soon came under pressure from the conservative clergy about the Jewish threat to Sweden, warning that wrong customs might be absorbed into the evangelical right. The clerics argued that the purity of the National Lutheran Church must be protected. Thus, in December 1685, Charles XI reluctantly issued a royal edict which prohibited the practice of the Jewish religion in Sweden. In doing so, he set off a bitter, though secretive, controversy that would taint Swedish efforts at economic and educational reform throughout the next century. So this writer evidently believes that both economic and educational reform in Sweden relies on Jews. And of course, the Jews still feel that way today, and they advertise it all the time. No bigot himself, our writer says. The king did not act forcefully on the edict, and an uneasy, unofficial tolerance developed. A small number of Jews were allowed to stay as long as they did not proselytize. I couldn't find the ethnicity of this author. The name could belong to a Jew. Of course, the author is sympathetic to Jews. But we would think that with her worldview, where bigotry is unacceptable, that for that reason she is all the more candid. Sweden's court had already had its share of Kabbalistic Jews during the earlier and brief reign of the young Queen Christina. 
Eventually, the same King Charles XI appointed the Judaizer, who believed that the American Indians were the ten lost tribes of Israel, and who swallowed hook, line, and sinker just about everything else the Jews told him, evidently. He was appointed as professor of three, I'm sorry, professor of theology at the University of Uppsala. He also became the Bishop of Skara. So a Jewish Kabbalist holds these high academic and religious offices in Sweden at the very start of the 18th century. We would assert that with him, Sweden had its own Johann Reuschlin. And like Reuschlin and his nephew Melanchthon, Jesper Swedberg's Judaizing also had a multi-generational impact. Through his own son, whose last name is only slightly different, Emanuel Swedenborg. And we read just a little further on. In 1692, the king appointed Jesper Swedberg as professor of theology at the University of Uppsala. Reinforced by the atmosphere of philo-Semitism at the university, Swedberg made his own home a center of Hebrew studies. As the father reported what his attendant angels said in the holy tongue, his son Emmanuel spent hours meditating on his own Hebrew and biblical studies. And after an account of some of the alleged visits of angels to Jesper Swedberg and his son Emmanuel, which are reminiscent of the events detailed in the diaries of John D., our author speaks of the young Emanuel Swedenborg's lifelong association with his brother-in-law, who was a librarian at the University of Uppsala, who also helped with his education, and she describes the early experiences that influenced Swedenborg's development into a scientist seer who secretly gathered intelligence on earth and in heaven. At the same time, many of the vague and confusing claims about Swedenborg's early access to secret traditions of Kabbalism, Rosicrucianism, and Freemasonry will take on historic plausibility. And it is not our purpose here, at least just yet, to examine the entire history of Freemasonry and its connections to Kabbalah through the Rosicrucians and alchemists and mystics of the time. For now, it shall suffice to say that evidently the soundest theory of the evolution of modern Freemasonry began with a reorganization of the old Scottish stonemasons' guilds undertaken by William Shaw at the behest of King James VI of Scotland, the future King, I'm sorry, the future James I of England, the king of the King James Bible. The original stonemasons' guilds seem to have had some rites of initiation and secrets among their members, which were related to both the trade itself and to job security for those who were initiated, and they were no more nefarious than modern-day 
union cards. These independent guilds were not federated until William Shaw organized them and centralized authority among the Scottish lodges. The following paragraph <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> the following paragraph is from Robert Cooper, an author of several books on Scottish Freemasonry, which he where he appears to draw as much as he can from original sources, original seventeenth century documents. And this paragraph is exerted here not from one of his books, but from an online discussion posted on a Freemasonic website where Robert Cooper refers to historical documents cited in his books. And yes, Cooper is a Freemason. And he says, these early Scottish documents reveal the existence of a system of stonemasons' lodges scattered across the country. There was no central authority, and the lodges acted independently of each other, although clearly they had a common purpose. This rather haphazard collection of Scottish lodges formed a kind of internet, I'm sorry, of national federation, but was later brought together by one man, William Shaw. These lodges remained exclusively for stonemasons, real mortar and trowel masons, until 1634, when the first non-stonemasons were admitted to a stonemason's lodge. These were therefore the first speculative masons, the original name for Freemasons. Free probably because they were free of working as stonemasons. These were therefore the first speculative masons, or Freemasons, and predate Elias Ashmole's initiation in 1646 by more than ten years. Oddly, he continues, meaning Ashmole, he continues to be cited as the first speculative Freemason, despite the evidence to the contrary. The transition from stonemasons' lodges, or actual trade unions, to modern Masonic lodges is well documented in Scottish records. Now this Elias Ashmole is another can of worms. His notes are said to contain the earliest evidence of Freemasonry in England. However, as Robert Cooper has informed us, he was not necessarily the first Freemason or speculative Mason. However, Ashmole is significant for other reasons, as his career informs us of the character of these early English Freemasons. Ashmole is said to have been an antiquary, astrologer, and alchemist, go figure, and therefore he follows in the mold of John Dee. He was also a royalist politician who was rewarded with profitable offices by Charles II after the restoration of the monarchy. He was one of the founding fellows of the Royal Society. It is said that one notable contemporary writer, Anthony Wood, had labeled Ashmole a Rosicrucian, 
a charge which was denied by another contemporary writer, the astrologer John Gadbury, who was also a Royal Society member. I kind of suspect that Gadbury was only covering for Ashmole, but of course I cannot prove it. During the 17th century, Freemasonry, founded in Scotland and sympathetic to the Stuart cause, also required the element of secrecy in the Cromwell years, as Freemasons sought the restoration of the monarchy. This new 17th century Freemasonry added to the speculative masonry the Kabbalistic fables of temper I'm sorry, of temple architecture, the plans for a new temple in Jerusalem, Jewish mysticism, alchemical sorcery, and all of this seems to have been a result of the fervor of Christian Zionism and the elevation of the Jews by the Christian Kabbalists. And here, when we say Christian Kabbalists, We don't mean people reading any non-existent Christian Kabbalah. We mean Christians who were following the Jewish Kabbalah. Eventually, Freemasonry became something which seemed to be founded on Jewish ideals. And the Jewish mysticism of the Kabbalah and the Jews themselves would come to rule the highest levels among the master Freemasons. The Royal Society, as well as its French counterpart, were created by Freemasons as an expression of the interest in science, which was originally not distinguished from Kabbalistic sorcery, and a lot of it is still Kabbalistic sorcery. For now we have a glimpse of what happened in Sweden, but a better background on what was about to happen in England. This is the Judaization of the Christian world, and it all began in the earliest years of the Reformation. This is the backdrop against which the Jew, whose name was originally Manuel Diaz Soyero, had come to England seeking the favor of Oliver Cromwell. But he is better known by his so-called Hebrew name, which was really just a cover so that he could maintain a pretense as Rabbi Manasseh ben Israel of Amsterdam. Soyero was a Portuguese rabbi, a Kabbalist, and a writer. He was also a merchant, who is also alleged to have founded the first Jewish printing press in Holland. After his appeals to Cromwell, he was unofficially called the Ambassador of the Jews to England. Here I am going to cite a book which I also cited in Part 2 of a series of podcasts that we had done with Sven Longshanks, from a year ago on the treachery of British politicians behind all of the invasions of Britain since Roman times. The authors recognized that some Jews had dwelt in England during the banishment. In the footnote, the fact that a few Jews are known to have lived in England during the 365 years between the formal expulsion of the race, 
in 1290 under Edward I and their formal readmission under Cromwell 1655 has little bearing on our present subject as they do not seem to have taken any prominent part in commerce and and that's like just a straight lie this is a downplay of what they were actually able to accomplish while they were in London, especially in the years leading up to the Anglo-Civil War and Cromwell, as we shall see later. But this is from that same book, A Social History of England, Volume 4, on page 381. The development of English commerce was, no doubt, assisted by the Jewish immigration. The permission to return given by Cromwell to this long-banished race may probably be connected with the general Judaic spirit of the Puritans. Oliver Cromwell himself, who was a Puritan, said, Great is my sympathy with this poor people whom God chose, and to whom he gave the law, which is absolutely incredible, and it was probably a similar sympathy which prevented any serious opposition to their readmission into England. Some London merchants indeed protested, but they were moved more by commercial jealousy, and this is just wrong, than by religious intolerance. The Hebrew immigration at this time consisted almost entirely of Spanish and Portuguese Jews who had been driven from the lands of their adoption by the persecution of the Inquisition. The estates had in many cases been confiscated, but they were, on the whole, nevertheless a wealthy body. Most of them had, in the first instance, settled in Holland or in Italy, and in these countries they had ample opportunities of learning the newest and most perfect methods of conducting international trade, and of giving and receiving credit. Many of them, in fact, came directly from Amsterdam which was by this time the commercial capital of Holland. And this is basically a complete whitewash of the history of the Jews at the time. Now, it's certainly not entirely true. Rather, it seems to be a history written for the benefit of the Jews, so that they could portray their opponents as little more than greedy merchants themselves. There was indeed a great deal of religious oppositions to allowing the Jews into England, and there were already at least some Jews in England at the time. They could not practice their religion openly or build synagogues. They were mostly crypto-Jews who fled Spain and Holland, coming over into England as merchants. One such religious opponent to the admission of the Jews was Edmund Gayton, an English scholar and poet who was a professor at St. John's at Oxford from 1626. In 1656, he wrote a poem warning against the Jews and he addressed it to Manasseh ben Israel himself. In it, Gayton asserted that allowing the Jews into England, the churches would be closed. St. Paul's Cathedral cathedral would be sold to the Jews for use as a synagogue, and they would continue to enrich themselves 
with usury while they proselytized all England. Now, in our opinion, Gayton, Gayton certainly does seem to have been a prophet, because that is precisely what has happened. Maybe not in that exact way, but it's exactly what happened. The English are now owned by the Jews, and men are marrying men because the Jews control England. The English Civil War between the Parliamentarians and the Royalists had begun in 1642 and lasted nearly ten years. Cromwell did not gain the title of Lord Protector until 1653, and he held it for just short of five years. Gayton's papers, preserved in the Bodleian Library at Oxford University, also indicate that there were Jews in England before the Council of Whitehall, which was held in the last weeks of 1655. Other papers show that the dispute over the admittance of Jews into England was ongoing at least as early as 1649 probably earlier, and that readmittance was heavily opposed by the royalist press of the time. The royalists went so far at this early time as to accuse Cromwell of of wanting to employ Jewish merchants in the selling off of the inhabitants of London into slavery to the Turks and Moors. Another contemporary writer warned that it was no marvel that those which intend to crucify their king, meaning Charles I, should shake hands with them that crucified their savior. And that was from the Anarchia Anglicana, written by Clement Walker and published in 1649. It is our opinion that Jews already in England, along with the Jews from Holland who had financed Cromwell, and who had also later compromised and financed Charles II after him, wanted an official decree of readmittance not so that they could enter England, as they already had, but so that they could practice their religion in England openly and without fear. For that reason, I believe that the appeals of Manasseh ben Israel, which were made to Cromwell, were a pretense. Cromwell, indebted to Jews, was already in favor of readmittance, as he was accused in the Royalist press as early as 1649 and was portrayed as an ally of the Jews in the Royalist press for many years before he had actually been petitioned for their readmittance. But the opposition among the English people was so great that he could not risk to force the matter. The real mission of Manasseh ben Israel was not to convince Cromwell, but to attempt to persuade sufficient of the English notables so as to win the cause. Cromwell was already convinced. However, even that was not enough, and the Council of Whitehall adjourned without making a formal decision and not being able to resolve their divisions. There were statements made by judges to the effect that 
they didn't know of a law forbidding the Jews, which seemed to be a concession rather than an approval. The Jews never received an official admittance to England. Although they had been permitted to participate in English politics and hold office since the 19th century now. I have summarized these things here because the details are beyond the scope of our purpose for this presentation and we would require a separate and lengthy study in order to provide all of the relevant factual evidence but it's certainly there. Continuing with a social history of England for perhaps one more long paragraph. Manasseh ben Israel was one of those peninsular Jews who had settled in Amsterdam. He had distinguished himself as a teacher and as a student, but the confiscation of his paternal estates had driven him to abandon the pursuit of learning in favor of the career of a merchant and a watchmaker. He then came over to England to intercede for the readmission of his co-religionists into the country. In his interview with Cromwell and the Privy Council, referring to Whitehall, he laid great stress on the increase in English exports and imports which the settlement of Jews in London would probably produce. And of course they had trade tied up at every port in every nation. He explained the importance of the exchange and banking transactions that were now carrying on from Holland, and showed that the large capital committed to their care by Spanish and Portuguese Jews, who thus hoped to save it from the Inquisition, enabled them to lend out money at what was then considered the extraordinarily low rate of 5%. Now, from my memory, if it serves me correctly, Henry VIII is the first one to permit usury in England ever since Edward I expelled the Jews, and he set the rate at 8%. Cromwell later lowered it to 6 so they're undercutting Cromwell and his law by 1%. These arguments must have been specially appreciated in a country whose merchants were at once envious of the low rate at which their Dutch rivals could borrow and desirous of extending their trade into all parts of the world. The Privy Council was divided on the subject, but the judges decided that the law did not prohibit Jews from living in England, and Cromwell gave them the required permission on his own authority. It was at once taken advantage of by a number of well-to-do merchants, and these were soon followed by poorer Jews from Holland and Poland. So Cromwell the usurper overturned a law made by a king that had lasted for almost 400 years. The first settlers do not seem to have accorded so friendly a welcome to their poorer brethren as the generally philanthropic character of the race might have led us to expect. These people are awfully friendly to Jews. They probably are Jews. We couldn't tell from the names of the authors. Charles II was appealed to on his restoration to reverse the policy of Cromwell.
But the Merry Monarch was too shrewd not to see that the presence of the Jews in England was stimulating commerce. And that's not the whole truth, but at least they admit it here. They continue by saying, Moreover, he had himself, during his exile, borrowed largely from Dutch Jews, and he not only continued to tolerate their presence, but he allowed them to open a synagogue in London in 1662. The social history of England glosses over the fact that Cromwell had already been accused of wanting to admit the Jews during the wars and, and, and of making alliances with the Jews during the wars between the royalists and the parliamentarians years before Manasseh ben Israel. Cromwell had actually awarded the Jewish rabbi to address, for addressing the Whitehall Conference with a lifetime pension after he had done so, which is an amazing reward for a conference that lasted three weeks in its totality. And that certainly wasn't all consumed by this rabbi. So he didn't even have to work three weeks for this lifetime pension. However, in spite of the evidence, which supports Cromwell's previous alliances with the Jews in Holland, and even the possibility that he originally invited Manasseh ben Israel to England, it is evident that a petition was presented to Cromwell first from Manasseh ben Israel. This is found in an unlikely place. In a letter recorded by the English State Secretary, whom we've already mentioned, John Thurlow, which was written from a French ambassador in Holland and addressed to the French ambassador in England. It was dated October 16th, 1654, about seven weeks perhaps, six weeks before the Whitehall Conference began. And the last paragraph of the letter states the following. A Jew of Amsterdam, this is from the French ambassador in Holland. A Jew of Amsterdam has informed me for certain that the three generals of the fleet had presented a petition to His Highness the Protector to obtain that their nation may be received in England to draw the commerce thither. And of course the Jew of Amsterdam must be Manasseh ben Israel or Soyero as I would prefer to call him. The letter seems to have been written for little particular purpose other than to share some news of various trivial, trivial events happening around the continent. And among other items, Queen Christina of Sweden was mentioned in the paragraph which precedes, where she had confided to the French ambassador in Holland that she distrusted whether her cousin would keep her pension payments coming. We would want to read a greater part of the book, however, before passing judgment on this one letter, but we kind of hold it suspect 
if we want to play the conspiracy theorist. This seems to just be a, a, a last-minute addendum to a letter which was written for no particular purpose, which was more or less a couple of paragraphs of gossip. First published in London in 1650, under his pseudonym, Manasseh ben Israel, the Jew, Soyero, had published a booklet titled The Hope of Israel. Of course, it's not the hope of Israel at all. The cover of the book promotes its author as a Hebrew divine and philosopher. Of course, that statement contains three great lies. The Jew is not a Hebrew. The Jew has never been divine. And the Jew is no true philosopher. The Jew is really a pseudosopher. A, a lover of lies, a, a, a lying wisdom and not a true wisdom. At least some modern-day Mormons cite this book as an authority for some of their own harebrained beliefs. We've encountered a couple of modern Mormon websites that have cited this book. Ignoring the New Testament and contradicting the prophets which the book cites out of context, the Jew sets out to prove that the savages which Spanish and Portuguese explorers had found in the Americas were somehow the ten lost tribes of Israel. He gives a fabulous account of how the deported Israelites of old had somehow journeyed from Tartary, where the even he admits the book of two Esdras traces them, to the Americas via Greenland without one shred of proof or any account of any intervening history. In another place, earlier in his booklet, Soyero contends that the first settlers of the New World were Phoenicians of Carthage and Iberia, which is true. But the savages found in Spanish times were certainly not the Phoenicians, whom Soyero also admitted were Israelites, who he says were white bearded, white and bearded, while the savages, whom he calls Indians, he describes as brown and beardless. Soyero realizes the discrepancy, noting differences in appearance character and level of civilization between the Phoenicians and the Indians, but then he offers contorted explanations by which to justify his identification of the Indians as Israelites. Of course, modern identity Christians understand that the Phoenicians were Israelites who inhabited Western Europe and North Africa at an early time, and certainly did explore the Americas long before they became known again or were rediscovered more recently. But if anything remains of the Phoenicians who landed in the New World, it was long ago destroyed by miscegenation. Identity Christians also know that the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations did indeed travel through the Caucasus Mountains into what is now Russia, Soyero's Tartary. And from there, 
They didn't end up in North America. From there, the Germanic tribes were formed, which migrated over the centuries into Europe. But all of that knowledge was beyond the Englishmen of the 17th century. We have already seen that by 1685, the Swedish academic and bishop, Jesper Swedberg, had also heard and accepted this account of the origins of the Indians from the Jews. The premise upon which Soyero rests his contentions is twofold. A belief in a global flood, which scripture denies, and the contention that if there was a global flood, the Indians had to come from somewhere so they must be the lost tribes of Israel. So one false premise forces one to accept another, and another, and another, ad infinitum. This is crucial to understand, because this false identification of the savages must be considered in relation to later English policy in regard to the savages. With the support of that, Cromwell had from his fellow Puritans, with the promotion of Manasseh ben Israel as a venerated Jew among the English, there should be little doubt that these very wrong ideas had permeated into English society in the 17th century. No doubt at all. Now we shall examine some of the grounds upon which the Jew, Manasseh ben Israel, addressed Oliver Cromwell and ultimately the Whitehall Conference. These addresses to Cromwell and the English nation were not without opposition, as we have already seen. However, what we seek to establish is some of the grounds upon which they were made, because we can't possibly cover them all since they were absolutely anti-Christian, and the fact that they were indeed accepted by a great many of the English, in spite of the fact that they were absolutely anti-Christian. We will usually call Ephraim ben Manasseh by his, or I'm sorry, Manasseh ben Israel by his Jewish name, Soyero here, because we disdain having to call him by what we believe is his impious pseudonym. And first we will present the address to Cromwell, to his highness, and he really kisses his highness's ass here, to his highness, the Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland, the humble addresses of Manasseh ben Israel, a divine and doctor of physic in behalf of the Jewish nation. Give me leave at such a juncture of time to speak to your highness in a style and manner fitting to us Jews and our condition. It is a thing most certain that the great God of Israel, creator of heaven and earth, talk about taking Yahweh's name in vain, does give and take away dominions and empires according to his own pleasure, exalting some and overthrowing others, who, seeing that he 
has the hearts of kings in his hand, he easily moves them, whithersoever himself pleases, to put in execution his divine commands. This, my lord, appears most evident out of those words of Daniel, where he, rendering thanks to God, for revealing unto him that prodigious dream of Nebuchadnezzar, does say that thou removest kings, and sets up kings, and elsewhere, to the end, the living might know that the highest has dominion in man's kingdom, and gives the same to whom he please. Of the very same mind, and here's where it really gets treacherous, of the very same mind are the Talmudists likewise, affirming that a good government or governor is a heavenly gift, and that there is no governor but is first called by God under that dignity. And this they prove from that passage of Exodus, which has nothing to do with a governor, it has everything to do with a craftsman. Behold, I have called Bazaliel by name, etc. And, and the place to really cite, if that was what you wanted to make an example of, would be Isaiah chapter 41-42, where it prophesies Cyrus, but the Jew can't even get his Bible straight. And he goes on to say, All things being governed by divine providence, God dispensing rewards unto virtues, and punishment unto vices, according to his own good will. This the examples of great monarchs make good, especially of such who have afflicted the people of Israel. And these are veiled threats against Cromwell. Soyero is really seeking Cromwell's favor by all this nice language about how he must have been appointed by God, but then he's really threatening him, if you look at the text closely. This the examples of great monarchs make good, especially of such who have afflicted the people of Israel, for none have ever afflicted them who has not been by some ominous Exit, most heavily punished of God Almighty, as is manifest from the history of those kings, Pharaoh, the Bucadnezar, Antiochus Epiphanius, Pompey, and others. And on the contrary, none ever was a benefactor to that people, and cherished them in their countries, who thereupon has not presently begun very much to flourish. So first it's a threat, then it's a bribe. In so much that the oracle to Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, seemeth yet daily to have its accomplishment. So the world revolves around the Jews, and everybody perennially gets cursed. Hence I, one of the least among the Hebrews, since by experience I have found that through God's great bounty towards us, many considerable and eminent persons, both piety for both piety and power, are moved with sincere and inward pity and compassion towards us, and do comfort us concerning the approaching deliverance of Israel. Those words are important here. The approaching deliverance of Israel.
could not but for myself, and in the behalf of my countrymen, make this my humble address to your highness, and beseech you for God's sake, that you would, according to that piety and power, wherein you are eminent beyond others, vouchsafe, to grant that the great and glorious name of the Lord our God may be extolled and solemnly worshipped and praised by us through all the bounds of this commonwealth, and to grant us a place in your country that we may have our synagogues and free exercise of our religion. I doubt nothing but that your clemency will easily grant this most equitable petition of ours. Pagans have, of old, out of reverence to the God of Israel, and the esteem they had to his people, granted most willingly free liberty, even to apostate Jews, as Onias the high priest, to build another temple in their country, like unto that at Jerusalem. How much more than we may, that are not apostate or runagate Jews. Hope it from your highness and your Christian council, since you have so great knowledge of and adore the same one only God of Israel together with us. And of course, nothing is further from the truth. Besides, it increases our confidence of your bounty towards us, in that so soon as ever the rumor that of that most wished-for liberty, that hope which he mentions is to come, that expected messianic hope is what he's referring to, that the Protestants confused with their own millennialism. Besides, it increases our confidence of your bounty towards us, in that so soon as ever the rumor of that most wished-for liberty that ye were th- a thinking to grant us was made known unto our countrymen. I, in the name of my nation, the Jews that live in Holland, did congratulate and entertain their excellencies, the ambassadors of England, who were received in our synagogue with as great pomp and applause, hymns and cheerfulness of mind, of mind as ever any sovereign prince was. And this is one reason why I do believe that Cromwell sent for Manasseh ben Israel, or sent for someone to help him facilitate his readmittance of the Jews into England. But the language is obscure. For our people did, in their own minds, presage that the kingly government, now being changed into that of a commonwealth, the ancient hatred towards them would also be changed into goodwill. That those rigorous laws, if any there be yet extant, made under the kings against so innocent a people, would happily be repealed. I guess Cromwell wasn't thinking about William of Norwich, Simon of Trent, countless other children, the usury, the oppression of the people, and all the crimes against the people committed by the Jews in the 13th century that caused their expulsion. But instead, somewhere... Along the line, Cromwell sent ambassadors to the synagogue in Holland, as Manasseh ben Israel states here. Wherefore, I humbly 
Entreat, your highness, that you would with a gracious eye have regard unto us, and our petition, and grant unto us, as you had done unto others, free exercise of our religion, that we may have our synagogues, and keep our own public worship, as our brethren do, in Italy, Germany, Poland, and many other places, and we shall pray for the happiness and peace of this your much-renowned and poisoned commonwealth. So the Jew basically ingratiates Cromwell by informing him that he sits as ruler of England by the will of God, the Jew's God, not Christ, and then uses the blessing to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to threaten Cromwell that if he did not bless the Jews, England would be cursed. Moreover, the Old Testament and an appeal to the Old Testament God is made on behalf of people claiming to be Israel, without any consideration of the New Testament and all of the warnings against those who say they are Jews and are not, which were made to Christians by Christ and the Apostles. Is Cromwell a Christian, or is he a Jew? I mean, he was born a Christian, but by this time, we have a serious problem. Soyero had the audacity to cite the Talmudists who absolutely hate Christ and employ traditional Jewish Talmudic subterfuge to undermine the naive leader and people of England. Cromwell was hardly a Christian. In fact, he could not have been a true Christian to accept any of these things. They had gotten themselves the printing presses. They had invented the printing presses and started manufacturing copies of the Bible, but they sure as hell never read them, evidently. We will present only the first part of Soyero's declaration to the English people, which was separate from his his address to Cromwell. A declaration to the Commonwealth of England by Rabbi Manasseh ben Israel, showing the motives of his coming into England. Having some years since often perceived that in this nation God has a people that is very tender-hearted, and again he's just patronizing the English people, and well-wishing to our sore-afflicted nation. Yeah, I myself, having some experience thereof, in divers eminent persons, excelling both in piety and learning, I thought with myself, I should do no small service to my own nation, as also to the people inhabitants of this commonwealth, if my humble addresses to the late honorable parliament, I might obtain a safe conduct once to transport myself thither which I having done, and according to my desire, received the most kind and satisfactory answer, now I have come. And to the end, all men may know the true motives and intent of this my coming, I shall briefly comprehend and deliver them in these particulars. First and foremost, my intention is to try, if by God's good hand over me, I may obtain here for my nation the liberty of a free and public synagogue. 
wherein we may daily call upon the Lord our God, that once he may be pleased to remember his mercies and promises done to our forefathers, forgiving our trespasses, and restoring us once again into our father's inheritance, and besides to sue also for a blessing upon this nation and people of England for receiving us into their bosoms and comforting Zion in her distress. This is incredible effrontery because basically Manasseh ben Israel is claiming that God forgave the trespasses of the Jews. But they haven't made propitiations in their temples for for 1,500 years, 1,600 years by this time. 1,600 years. And they rejected Christ. So they have no propitiation for their sins. Where is their propitiation? But God forgave them freely. That's That's the assertion he's making here. That alone should be an offense to any Christian who ever read his scripture. (coughs) On the other hand, Paul of Tarsus had warned that whoever does not love Jesus Christ, he must be accursed. Christians of the time should have already understood that, and evidently, they failed. Continuing with Soyero, and I'm kind of still typing my notes. My second motive is, because the opinion of many Christians, and mine, do concur herein, I guess they hadn't read their Bibles, that we both believe that the restoring time, and this is the important, this is important, that we both believe that the restoring time of our nation into their native country is very near at hand, This is Zionism, but this is also the confusion of Christian millennialism for Jewish Messiah expectation, Jewish Messianic expectations. And the two are really absolutely contrary to one another. I believing more particularly that this restoration cannot be before these words of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 7, be first accomplished when he saith, and when, and and listen to this closely, because he adds an entire phrase into it that does not exist, and when the dispersion of the holy people shall be completed in all places, then all these things shall be completed, that in all places doesn't exist, signifying therewith that before all be fulfilled, the people of God, errantly thinking that the Jews are the people of God, must first be dispersed into all places and countries of the world. Now we know how our nation at the present is spread all about, and has its seat and dwelling in the most flourishing parts of all the kingdoms and countries of the world, as well as in America, as in the other three parts thereof, except only in this considerable and mighty island, and therefore this remains only in my judgment, before Messiah comes and restores our nation.' 
that first we must have our seat here likewise. And here is another lie and another threat. The Jew first misquotes Daniel to assert that it is the will of God that they must occupy every nation in the world, which is not at all what Daniel had said. Then he insists that there will be no Messiah until the Jews inhabit the most flourishing parts of all kingdoms. But the Jewish Messiah is not the Christian Messiah, who had already come and whom the Jews had rejected. Christians and Jews may use the same words, but they cannot speak the same language. Yet we are blessed to see the subterfuge for which so many of our medieval English forebears had fallen. And our people are still fallen for these same lies. Continuing with Soyero, my third motive, or Manasseh ben Israel, right? That's a joke that a Jew with, with a name like Manuel Soyero would just take a Bible name to put on a pretense as if that makes him one of these people and he's nothing of a sort. My third motive is grounded on the prophet that I conceive this commonwealth is to reap. If it shall be vouchsafe to receive us, for thence I hope, there will follow a great blessing from God upon them, and a very abundant trading into, and from all parts of the world, and not only, without prejudice to the English nation, but for their profit, both in importation and exportation of goods. Yet if any shall doubt hereof, I trust their charity towards the people of God will satisfy them, especially when they shall read the ensuing treatise. And we're not going to read the ensuing, ensuing treatise past its title. This basically amounts to a bribe. But, in truth, acceptance of the Jews has basically kept the English people from this time, from this very time, in a state of war. They've been in a state of war ever since. They, re, they ex, readmitted the Jews. Perhaps forgiving some short periods of time when they were only recovering from war. The fourth motive, or suffering depression, the fourth motive of my coming hither is my sincere affection to this commonwealth by reason of so many learned, worthy, and pious men to this nation in this nation, whose loving kindness and piety I have experience of, hoping to find a like affection in all the people generally, the more because I always have, both by writing and deeds, professed much inclination to this commonwealth, and that I persuade myself they will be mindful of that command of the Lord our God, who so highly recommends unto all men the love of strangers, much more to those that profess their good affection to them. For this I desire all may be confident of, that I am not come to make any disturbance, or move any disputes about matters of religion, but 
only to live with my nation in the fear of the Lord, under the shadow of your protection, whilst we expect with you the hope of Israel to be revealed. And the Jew knows what the NT, what the New Testament says. But the Jew only quotes the New Testament or makes allusions to the New Testament when it when it benefits the Jew. The confusion of good for evil is very old indeed. The Jew considers those who are fooled by his deceit to be worthy, learned, and pious. Pious, probably, because they worship the Jews instead of Jesus. While those who reject the Jews are bigoted and hated, as we saw from one of the first writers we cited this evening, Marsha Keith Shukard. Of course, Christian principles are never considered by the Jews, unless it benefits the Jews, and we should not expect them to consider them in any other light. However, we should expect Christians to consider Christian principles and respect the judgment of morality set forth by Christ and his apostles. rather than that set forth by the Jews. Sadly, that has never been the case in history. Christianity has never been practiced, and the natural result, because we were told to reject the Jews, and we didn't, because those who reject, the, reject Christ are antichrists, but we don't listen, because those who do not love Jesus are accursed, but we don't listen, the result is Jewish world supremacy. There's no other possibility. The following parts of his Declaration to the Commonwealth of England contain sections entitled How Profitable the Nation of the Jews Are and How Faithful the Nation of the Jews Are. There was also a Vindication of the Jews, which was an answer to William Prynne's argument against the readmittance of the Jews, entitled Short Demurrer. I could not find a copy of it. In addition to these, there was an essay titled Considerations Upon the Point of the Conversion of the Jews. This one's good. This paper also exhibits the Jewish messianic fervor of the time, which was contagious among Christian millennialists. However, its opening premise is fascinating because it reflects a belief still held among Judaized Christians today. So we will read the first few sentences. We have not read all of Soyero's writing, great parts of it, but this is the only time we notice quotes, actual quotes from the New Testament in any of it, as there are a few other citations from it further on in this essay that we won't get to. But he actually does quote the New Testament here several times because it is to his benefit.
God has promised to do great things in these last days, as namely, to subdue all his enemies, which would mean kill all the Jews, right? To relieve his people, to destroy all tyranny and oppression, both civil and ecclesiastical, and to, and this one's good, and to ampliate or make larger the bounds of Christ's kingdom by a plentiful pouring forth of his spirit, and by converting the multitudes of both Jews and Gentiles. Herein he does what the ruler of the feast said to the bridegroom in John chapter 2, verse 10. He keeps the best wine till last. He makes the last act the best part of the comedy. So speaking of the prospect of converting the Jews, Soyero cites the New Testament as an excuse to forestall conversion, while at the same time he makes light of it by imagining it to be a comedy. The irony of it just kills me that Christians accepted such subterfuge. But it gets worse. Further on, he cites Peter in an exhortation to brotherly love and kindness, and then he attributes those empathies to Christ himself. So Jews reject Christ, but Jews find Christians guilty if they do not extend Christian love to Jews, which is all contrary to Scripture. Soyero even makes a reference to the methods of the devil while he employs the very methods of the devil about which Christ and the apostles had warned their followers. And most Christians, in spite of those warnings, still believe the Jews today. Following the lie of Jewish messianic fervor is a forked role for Christians, a forked road for Christians. But there is more to it than just Sabbatai Zebi or Manasseh ben Israel. The following is from a short article, Cromwell and the Readmission of the Jews to England in 1656 by one Barbara Coulton of Lancaster University in England. And I quote, The context for the actions of Cromwell and Manasseh involved Protestant millenarianism and Jewish messianism, religious toleration, and the good of the state. Belief in the millennium and in the second coming of Christ was long-standing, but received fresh impetus after the Reformation. A leading millenarian in the 17th century England was the Cambridge scholar Joseph Mead, who lived from 1586 to 1638, a rather short life of 52 years, whose interpretation of the book of Revelation traced the historical application of apocalyptic prophecy 
Mede was another 16th century Hebraist, but upon a precursory examination, there are no charges of him being a Kabbalist or a sorcerer that I found in time for this program. Other biblical works, such as Zechariah and Daniel, contain passages which Mede applied to the Jews, comparing their expected conversion to that of Paul. Their conversion would be a witness to Christ, and here's the important part, and a reproof to the Church of Rome. It would herald or coincide with the second coming. So these Christians in the 17th century were expecting a Jewish Messiah and imagining the Jewish Messiah to be the second coming of Christ, even though the Jews rejected Christ. And here is the impetus. Reformers embracing the enemies of Christ simply because they wanted to rehabilitate the enemies of Roman Catholicism and thereby convict the Pope. They cared more about hating the Pope than they did about hating the enemies of Christ. They just wanted to make the Jews good so that they could get even with the Pope and to hell with the words of Jesus. They didn't care about the words of Christ. And Barbara Colton continues, On the other hand, some Jews believed that their Messiah would appear when they had been scattered throughout the world. They would be gathered again and led to Zion. Manasseh ben Israel held this belief. The return of the Jews to England was important to both sides. The new chosen people, Protestant England, would convert them. Their reaching England would help the progress of Jewish messianism. The two aims were, of course, incompatible. That's the note made by Barbara Colton herself. She understood that Christian millenarianism and Jewish messianism are incompatible. Another factor in the acceptance of the Jews was the interest of Puritan divines in the Hebrew language and its religious literature. In an extreme form, this could lead to Judaizing practices such as observing the Jewish Sabbath. In general, it took the form of philosemitism examples of which will be cited, and we're not going to cite much more of her article. We will link a PDF copy of the article to the notes for this presentation when it's posted at Christogenia. So we have seen that the Kabbalah and its adherents were spread not only throughout Germany and Italy in the 16th century, but also throughout England and Sweden in the 17th. And both the Jews and the Kabbalists among the Christians were very influential in 17th century England at the same time that the Freemasonic lodges were also developing. The Freemasons, originally called speculative Masons, because they were not stonemasons, consisted largely of alchemists, astrologers, and other sorcerers, some of whom were making a transition into developing sciences, and a great number of whom had a particular interest in the supposed secrets of Kabbalah.
Through the Kabbalah, since it is written in what the Jews call Hebrew, the rabbis of the Jews would ultimately be their masters. We have seen in the earlier portions of these presentations that the myths, ideals, objectives, and rituals of Freemasonry were indeed wholly Jewish. And throughout those earlier parts of this series, we saw witness to the fact from the testimony of 18th and 19th century Freemasons themselves that Freemasonry was founded on Judaism. At the same time, Protestant millennialism was being syncretized with Jewish messianic desires, a combination which is entirely hostile to true Christianity, but which seems to be an ideal incubator for the Zionist professions of Freemasonry, which are expressed in the desire to restore the Jews to a new Temple of Solomon and institute world Jewish government. In the meantime, Jews such as Manasseh ben Israel were claiming an authority over Christians based on their own application of scripture to themselves. Scriptures which have nothing at all to do with them if only Christians had read and considered the word of Christ. We have seen sufficient evidence to support all of these assertions throughout the series of presentations. During the formative years of the Reformation, Satan was working Satan was working overtime in an effort to subvert all Christendom. In the growth of Freemasonry on the continent, the Jews would have all the ingredients they need to undermine Christian society. It is also evident that in the formative years of the lodges of Freemasonry in England, the members of those lodges had been of the Royalist Party throughout the English Civil War, being favorable to the Scottish Stuart monarchy. And for that reason, out of necessity, they had to operate as secret societies. When a successor to the restored Charles II, Charles II, his brother James II, was deposed in the so-called Glorious Revolution in favor of William III of Orange, the Roman Catholic James II sought refuge in France. It was William III who permitted the Jewish usurers to found the Bank of England. With this, it is evident that many of the Jacobites, Freemasons who were supporters of James II, also went to France. The connections are sketchy, and the accounts often conflict, but within a century, there was a group called the Jacobins, and the French Revolution was organized by Freemasonry, and the emancipation of the Jews had followed. That account, however, will have to await further investigation, if indeed it is our lot to present it here. Next Saturday, a conversation with Arthur Lee from IdentityStruggle.org. Next Friday, Pastor Mark Downey. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. White Power, one, two, three, four!
Oh, Blizzard, or it gets too late.